Um, it's Saturday night already, which happened, it always strikes me as that it happens very, very quickly. Um, tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the fourth and fifth steps. In fact, what I'd like to do is talk about steps four, five, six, and seven, because my understanding of them is that they all go together real quick. The mythology of the program, however, is that once you've, and by the mythology, it's what a lot of people believe, but it's not in the book. <laughs> the mythology is that once you've done five, it is such an awful experience, you should lie down for about three years. <laughs> and not do anything, you know. Well, he just did a fifth step last Christmas, no wonder he's crazy. <laughs> Where the uh, book says, the same day you've done five, you do six and seven. You get them done. So you can go on with your life, because most of us haven't been real involved in that. It says here, number four, we made a, well, back to three for a second. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. A couple of simple things that I'd like to say about that, because I talked a lot about God and a lot about spirituality and stuff like that. The third step is very high spirituality. This is not a beginner's step. This demands lots of trust and lots of faith. And it's, there are some people, and they aren't many, but some people are capable of taking this step once. And it affects all of their lives. Now, I'm not one of those people. I am a nibbler at the third step. Where I have taken it once, but I continually need to remind myself of the fact. And life goes along fine, and then when it blows up, I find I take the third step over again. My sponsor told me that the, once you have taken the third step, you have lost your right to be hysterical. <laughs> and that came with a tremendous blow to me because hysteria I loved. I mean, anything this side of true drama was mine. And, and to find I have lost the right to be... My favorite example of this, my, there was one real hard-ass sponsor in uh, California. Anyway, this, this guy who he was sponsoring, I don't like baby and pigeon. So I don't try to say that. I just, it's just <laughs> probably about something where I was raised. Anyway, I... Um, uh, this person who was being sponsored, what happened in one afternoon was that his wife met his girlfriend who met his boyfriend. <laughs> and all, all three of them had a very interesting conversation. And uh, he came home to find out, you know, he was a two years sober, he was fine. Well, um, anyway, every, every, the, the option is suicide, of course. The first thing you think of is something like that is suicide. So he called his sponsor and he says, what am I going to do? And the sponsor said, are you taking your third step? And the guy said, yes. He said, then relax, it'll work out. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe your situation will, but my situation won't. And, and it did, over time. In fact, his life got a lot simpler after that. <laughs> I'm for a simple lifestyle, I tell you. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. We're turning over to the care of God. Not to the judgment of God, not to the wrath of God, not to the, you know, to the care of God as we 
understood God. Um, what I need to remind myself on this is, in, in terms of my own life, um, I do not know what is best for me. That's still true. I mean, I really do not know what is best for me. I choose to believe that God does. And that if I cooperate, this will work out somehow. Um, Blanche Davenport is a woman in, in uh, Texas who's uh, been an Al-Anon since God invented dirt. And she was talking about, you know, how things work out and how they don't work out. And she was saying that in, in 1964, her mother was terminally ill with cancer. And she was in the hospital visiting her mother. And let me see if I remember this correctly. She uh, uh, was outstanding. Her mother was dying in the room and she was standing out in the hall and she was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And one of the other patients came up there and said, dear, your mother will be all right. And Blanche said, oh, you don't understand. My mother is dying. And the other patient said, I didn't say she was going to get well. I said she was going to be all right. Mm -hmm. And Blanche said she died that year and she's been all right ever since. You know? Leading things will work out. That doesn't mean they're going to work out the way I like them to. But things will work out and, and to the greater good. I really fundamentally have to believe that or I couldn't leave my room. I need to fundamentally believe that the power and the love of God is greater than any of the hostility, ignorance, and stupidity that we can put up to fight it. I need to believe that, and I choose to. Until um, I watch the news. <laughs> Go through reactions. All right, so with, with that, uh, as far as the third step goes, I, I, I think the third step is done on a regular basis for folks like me. And I know a lot of people who start the day off with the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer, and that seems to work for them. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Where I got sober, there were people who talked about this step like this. I've been writing my fourth step for nine years. <laughs> and I am on my 15th volume and have gotten up to my first marriage. You know. Well, when I hear folks talk like that, uh, I am real impressed because theirs is bigger than mine. I mean, it's real clear. But what's also true is if it has to be that long and involved, I can't do it. I, I, that kind of AA macho paralyzes me. Because I, this is not a writing contest. Okay. Also, it is, you are not doing your autobiography. I was born out of your, this is not an autobiography. Nor is it the great American novel. Okay. It's just none of those things. This is an inventory, which means a list. You're making a list. And if you want to do it in pencil, pencil or crayon or pen, it's perfectly all right. If you want to do it on... It says we made a list. However, you make lists, you know? A list is kind of counting stuff, and you take a look at things. What, what the book suggests, it has... And I would suggest first, if you haven't done your fourth step yet, or you've been talking about it, you know, which means you haven't done it, um, 
I started talking about it months before I started doing it. And the more I talked about it, the less I did. It was an interesting kind of thing. Finally, you just get so crazy, you have to do it. And by doing you start just making the list. Some people do it on tape. Some people do it on paper. But you make a list. The book has some very practical suggestions. You make some lists and some columns about Mrs. Brown and Mrs. Jones, you know, with sex question marks. Um, if that works for you, wonderful. That really does help a lot of people if you just look at what the book says, the AA Big Book about the fourth step. And being that it's in there, I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm going to say go look at it. All right. The Alamon inventory to a fourth step I found personally far more helpful because it, it gave it more in terms that I think of. And, and the Al-Anon has a wonderful fourth-step guide that you might want to look at. Hazelton has one, too. Their first fourth-step guide to the inventory, I read it and wanted to hang myself. Uh, every, and I had done my fourth-step five years before. Every bit of guilt and nuanced stuff that could come up from my sophomore religion teacher was right there. And I just felt completely insane, and it took me three days to recover just from reading it and not talking about doing it, you know? God, I just... So I know they come with a new fourth-step guide, you know, which is not as, not as awful as the other one, okay? If that helps, please use it. Um, I just, I hear fifth steps on occasion, and there's one, there, there's a group of people, and if I offend someone on this, I think I want to. There's a group of <laughs> people that, that write up four-step guides for other people. You know, like it's 9,004 questions, you know. Have you ever had sex with a goat? If so, was the goat Catholic? You know, da 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 da, da. You know, How old were you? You know, have you ever stolen from your... It, it's these endless questions to which you're supposed to answer yes or no or maybe, you know. And it goes on for page after page after page after... I think that is so compulsive. I'm, I'm just amazed at that. I'm amazed at the people who have that kind of energy to put into such a questionnaire, and I have the people who are desperate enough to go through answering yes and no to someone else's questions. I just find it amazing. But also, it has helped some people get well. You know, they're I'm in both the writer and the writee. I'm, you know, far be it for me to say they're crazy. Um, um, what breaks up usually into a fourth step are a couple of areas. Usually, people spend some time writing about their relationships with their family. That's a couple of pages. You know? Usually people spend some time writing about jobs or the lack thereof. No work experience. Because some of us have very colorful work careers. That takes a couple of pages. Usually people have to write some things about um, uh, relationships with, you know, other people, friends or church people, agencies and organizations we've been around. And usually people write some about sex. That almost gets a whole paragraph, paragraph, a whole couple of pages all to itself. Because for so many of us, that is the most shameful and embarrassing stuff we have to talk about. We never talk about it. Um, what I found interesting, I mean, doing it kind of that way, you break it up into manageable areas and you write down everything you can think about that subject that's true. That's doing the inventory. List it off. Boom, boom, boom. You know, I have these strengths. I have these weaknesses. When I did mine, however, oh, one, one other suggestion, uh, a, a priest named Bill Perkins, who is uh, an awful drunk, um, 
Bill said that what he likes to do with people who especially are crippled by guilt and scruples, people who never give themselves a break, you know, who are vicious judges of themselves. He said you get two stacks of paper, and on one on the top of it you write, if I had my life to live over again, here's what I'd do again. And you write all that stuff down. And stack two, if I had my life to live over again, here's what I'd change. You know? And when you get done with that, you've got a fourth step. Yeah. Kind of interesting. What I did with mine is, because I thought I heard it at a meeting, <laughs> uh, I made a list of, of different vices and virtues like anger and jealousy and stuff. And I wrote that at the top of the page. And I started writing a list under anger of all the people I wanted to see slowly dead. That's what I did. Now, I started writing this list when I was very angry. So I had a couple of them right off the top. And then I, kind of, I found out that homicidal feelings are healthier than suicidal feelings. Because at least with homicidal feelings, with homicidal feelings, you're relating to someone else, you know? My suicide is just you alone in the room, same old thing. Um, and I found out there were a lot of people I was very angry at. And I, just, I didn't have to write down the why and when I first met them, and did, you know, just names. Made a list of all the people. Second list I made was of all the things I felt jealous about. And I could, I could have told you when I started the list that would have been a very short list. I was not aware of jealousy in my life. The reason I say that is because um, there are a lot of things I don't notice. I really do not notice cars. <clears throat> and I really do not notice the prices of clothing that people wear. I mean, I need to pick that up. But, uh, you know, I've got my basic, uh, you know, two pairs of pants and four pairs of sandals, and I'm set, you know, in five t-shirts, and, and I just kind of live like that, and, and I don't notice Gucci, and I don't notice all this other, and I don't notice jewelry, um, and I don't notice fashion, I, you know, that, so therefore I concluded I was not a jealous person. Um, not true. Not true. What I did notice was that your family was more interesting than mine, your friends were prettier than mine, and more interesting than mine, I had very boring friends. <laughs> if you were able to speak two foreign languages and play a musical instrument, I wanted you dead. <laughs> <laughs> what I was jealous about were your spiritual qualities. I mean, those kinds of things you can't measure by yourself. But, I mean, the gift, the natural gifts you had. If your shoulders were wider, you know, if you ran faster, if you were better. I hated you. And, and I found out I had a tremendous amount of jealousy, but not on things that lots of people are jealous about. And so that was a very revealing list to me. Uh, and I continued with other stuff, you know. I mean, things I had stolen. And I, I didn't steal much. I mean, just a couple of things that I had to, you know. Uh, just, stealing was not a bit, because I was rigorously honest in Los Angeles. I really was. I mean, if I had found $5 on the street and I've done this, I turned it into the nearest store. You know, I didn't, I mean, I couldn't take it. It wasn't mine, but I would give it to a store and it wasn't theirs either, but at least it wasn't mine, you know. So, um, Al-Anon, do you hear me calling? Anyway, uh, when I started writing my fourth step when I was about six months sober, and the only reason I started writing it was because I was told, if you don't write it, you'll drink again. So I didn't write it to get well. I wrote it because I didn't want to drink again. 
And I wrote in that rage until the rage passed. And whenever I was in pain over the next 18 months, I wrote. And as soon as the pain left, I stopped writing. That's how I did my fourth step. At the end of 18 months, I had 20 minutes to half an hour of material. And I have my experience with hearing fifth steps is that many, many, many fifth steps can be told 20 minutes to an hour. Most of us aren't that imaginative. Um, I found out if you give me a couple of social drinks, I do the same four, five, or six tricks over and over and over again without variation. I mean, it's just awful. Um, and a lot, a lot of my fourth step was boring. I was, I, which was embarrassing. That it was my best shot, and it was boring. I tried even spicing up parts of it, and they were still boring. Um, I was basically depressed and self-obsessed. Million laughs, right? You can't make a sitcom out of that. And occasionally, I would hop in a car and drive all over the state of California seeking humiliating and degrading experiences. But most of my fourth step is just, you know, depression and boredom. Okay. I made a date with my sponsor, Terry. I said, listen, let's get this done. So, and I was going to take a week off and finish it up, tie the loose ends up and get it finished because I was putting it off and putting it off. And I was almost two years sober, so I had to do it. So I made a date with Terry. He said, okay. And I got finished on retreat. I finished, I wrote about an hour or two a day and finished the schlocky, awful, embarrassing thing and carried it around for a while. And finally, Terry came to my room. And, and the way the fifth step reads is it says, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, some sponsors say, you've got to take your fifth step with me. That's not what the book says. The book says, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. Some sponsors don't qualify. <laughs> when they're busy being God as they understand God, you know, just the purpose of step five is to find someone you can dump with and find someone that is comfortable for you to dump with. Um, we had this brief thing at a Berkeley meeting one night where a guy wanted to know if he should do his fifth step with his wife because it would make them so much closer. <laughs> and we said, you've read too many books! You know? God, Harlequin romances, that's what he was fed on. And we said, you know, this, this is not, the purpose of this step is not to make you closer with anybody. You know, the purpose of this step is to admit to someone who has a short-term memory all this stuff you've been involved with so you can dump it. Well, that's what you're involved in. But he, he, that, it didn't feel right to him. You know, and I, I hope he, I, I, I can't, I mean, talk about kamikaze. Um, also, it's part of his ego that he thought she'd be interested, you know. You know, of course she would. She's my wife. She'd be fascinated by me. Yeah. Especially after living with you for 20 years, you know, she's probably, you know, breathless. Um, <laughs> admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. Well, I, I made this date with Terry, and Terry showed up, and so we did this in my room, which I think is a mistake. I prefer, I tell people, meet in a neutral place where you can leave if it gets weird. 
you know. Like a Greyhound bus depot is great for fifth step. Um, we had one fella in Los Angeles, and he was real nervous because the, the statute of limitations had not run out on some of his better ideas. <laughs> and he was convinced that he was a very paranoid, like some of us are. And, and um, I didn't think he was paranoid. I thought it was just sensitive. You know? um, but he used to think that FBI agents attended meetings waiting for him to talk. <laughs> And I said, well, they're probably only attending meetings because they're alcoholics, you know, but I mean, who, who am I to judge? Um, anyway, this guy, finally, he had to take a fifth step. He had this, you know, all this stuff just sizzling. And then, so um, he went down to the Greyhound the bus depot in L.A. And he said there was, a, you know, a bus going to Philadelphia in about 30 minutes. And there was this little old man waiting with a suitcase waiting in line. And he wandered up to me and he said, excuse me, but can I buy you a cup of coffee? And the little old man said, sure, why not? So they went over and, and sat in the thing, and the little old man sat down, and as he was having his cup of coffee, this guy said, I'd like to read you something. <laughs> and he started. And I just see this little old man with eyes getting wider and wider and wider. He finished his stuff in about 20 minutes. I think that a major truth can be told in about three minutes. I really believe that. And if you've got a couple of major truths, it may go to ten. You know? But knock off all the bullshit and just tell the truth, and you'd be amazed at how streamlined some of these things can get. So that this guy went for 20 minutes talking about the major awful things that he had done. And then when he was done, he took the little old man back to the bus line and waited until he got on the bus and made sure he got out of town. You know, wave goodbye. <laughs> they did not exchange names or phone numbers. And anyway, he came back feeling wonderful back to this meeting. He says, I did my fifth step, and he told us how he did it. And I said, oh, didn't you know that usually FBI agents wait down at the Greyhound bus people waiting to do people like you? <laughs> I loved it. Right. When, I, when I was doing this with Terry, I, I didn't even look at him because I was embarrassed about some of the stuff. Also, a lot was boring. So what I did was I admitted to God myself and the floor of the exact nature of my wrong, and Terry happened to be in the room. And he's kind of a passive-aggressive type anyway. He's not too chatty. And he was kind of sitting back, rocking back and forth. And um, well, when I was done... Like 20 minutes, half an hour after I started reading this awful stuff, I was going, uh, do I, all right, I'll read that thing. Man. <laughs> and he, uh, I was done, and he was silent, which he is a lot. Um, and, and he just kind of sat there for a moment, and then he said, well, one thing's real clear. I froze. I, uh, I do not like people for whom one thing is real clear. I don't associate with people for whom one thing is real clear. I always felt inadequate next to them, you know. And he said, I was waiting for the blow, you know. Yeah. And he said, both you and I need this program very much. <laughs> and he got up and left my room, and I was thrilled to see him go. 
I didn't call him for six months. <laughs> and the next time I saw him, it was like, I mean, we had never met before. Like, I had to get reacquainted with him because I didn't know if he still liked me after hearing my fifth step. Because there was stuff in there I thought was a little delicate, as we say. Uh, and I found out he was very comfortable. Just very comfortable. But it took me a... He was, but I wasn't. You know, it took us a while to get back on familiar ground. And right now, he's one of the several people who knows my soul very well. I, I, there are a couple of people. I just keep them in tune with the most recent crises, you know. And we have an ongoing thing. I'm going to see him Monday night. He buys me dinner. I think it's a great relationship. So, this... What else? Oh, fifth step. Right now, this is just a. If you stole a lot of stuff, and and in your fourth step you made a list as far as you can remember of the times and persons and so forth and how much you've stolen, and you have listed 837 instances of theft where you were responsible. Okay, in your fifth step, do you have to mention all 837? Well, it says admitted the exact nature of our wrongs. The exact nature of your wrong is you're a thief. <laughs> That's what you admit. And then give three of the more interesting examples. <laughs> you don't need to go through 837. Think of the poor slob listening to you, you know? Um, what do you have to mention in your fifth step? I believe the one thing, the things you must mention are those things you swore you'd never tell anyone. That you've got to let go of. Should you mention it right away or later? Um, who cares? Um, do it right away. Get it over with, you know? What we found, this is kind of similar to, to hearing confessions, by the way. And it's, it's an interesting part of being a priest is hearing confessions, especially if you do it in a very traditional way of being in the box, you know, which is a little claustrophobic, so I usually don't do that. I, I get weird. Um, but I have been in there, and what's interesting, I just want to mention this because, you know, most of you people never think about these things. When you're in the box, and the purpose of the box in Catholic, the Catholic situation, was to protect the anonymity of the person talking. And the purpose of the confessional was so people could go and dump and get rid of the stuff that they'd been carrying around for years. It turned into a later thing where you dumped to some people and got scolded a lot, you know, which is not the purpose. That priest had a problem. Uh, but the, the, the healthy situation is to be in a place where you can dump and hear God's mercy That's, and, and forgiveness and welcome home. That's the, the healthiest situation. Anyway. In the box, though, when you have that screen there, you can't see the person you're talking to. You don't know, as they walk, all you hear is someone walks in, you don't know how old they are, you don't know what sex they are, you don't know how nervous they are, you don't know anything about this person other than the voice. So what you've got to do over a period of time is listen exquisitely. Because the only way you have of judging that person's level of education, nervousness, guilt, fear is the voice. And you have to do it. It's exhausting hearing confessions. Because, I mean, because we don't, we usually watch, we're very visual people, but to do all this stuff. And in the years I've been listening to confessions, what, I don't know how much sin I've heard, whatever sin is, and I was telling, so I have to rethink sin on a regular basis. Um, 
But I've heard a tremendous amount of guilt and pain. Tremendous amount of guilt and pain. And I think that's frequently the material of a fifth step too, is the guilt and the pain. And all those things we've never told anyone because we didn't think anybody could understand. Um, the exact nature of our wrongs admitted. I think it's a real healthy step if you've been afraid of, of you know, who should you choose as someone to do a fifth step with? Anyone who will keep their mouth shut will do. Because it is no one's business but yours. Find someone you can trust, maybe someone who's a friend, uh, but sometimes we really like strangers, you know? Because it's someone nice and safe you can talk to. Again, that was part of the purpose of, of the box. Um, then it says, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Let me see. This is what the book says. Now, this paragraph causes problems for some people. It says this. Um, Page 75. We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem will often, has disappeared, will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I didn't feel like that when I was finished with my fifth step. I didn't. When I was finished with my fifth step, I said, Tom, you've done your fifth step. Period. And I was waiting for this big emotional rush. Some people have that. That is, that's valid experience for some people um, because they just feel so unburdened and life is suddenly fabulous. But that wasn't like that for me. Um, what my sponsor told me six months later when I saw him again was he said, by the way, Tom, I, I had one more thing to say about your fifth step. And I went, oh, okay, what? And he said, if you keep on working the program to the best of your ability, you won't have to drink today. When I finished my fifth step, I did not go right on to six and seven. I didn't know about six and seven. Instead, I said, I think I'll go to a meeting, and being that I've done my fifth step and I've gone to a meeting, I think I won't have a drink today. It was real low-key emotion for me, and that was around two years sober. This, um, I think, what, what this paragraph talks about does happen, but it takes time. It doesn't happen that afternoon. You know? And then it goes on to say, Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. All right, you've done your fifth step. You're home now at 6 o'clock at night. Carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know God better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we should walk a free person at last. I like to have you omitted step three, you know, that kind of stuff. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? 
do you think someone in construction wrote that paragraph? <laughs> if we can answer to our satisfaction, notice our satisfaction, not perfection. Would you give yourself a C minus? That's satisfactory. We then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. And that's true. And I both both Alanons and AAs, if you do not want to get well, you won't. So relax. You know. Some of us are so afraid of suddenly waking up well, we just can't, you know, cope with it. If you want to hold on to your sickness and hysteria and grief and pain, you will. Believe me. So, you know, you'll sleep well tonight knowing this. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Like what? Well, how about your bigotry and your fear and your intolerance and your workaholism and your vicious mouth? Let's start with those, Tom. Oh, those. Okay. Can God now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go your favorite form of prejudice. We ask God to help us be willing. When ready, now it's 6.45. That's taking 45 minutes. It's 6.45. When ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. And then it says, we have then completed step seven. Now, if you've done four and five, but haven't done six and seven yet, get them done before you go to bed tonight. Get them done so you can go on with your life. Well, I don't want to be perfect, you know. Uh, what if all my defects of character are removed? They won't be. <laughs> they won't be. See, the thing is, God finds defects of character very useful to work with. That's real true. Um, I think the reason is people identify with people that have defects of character. You don't identify with people that don't. Well, what if, for instance, you are you're the most notorious bigot at your meeting, and you are filled with resentment and rage and awfulness about a lot of different people. And every meeting you talk about them and you're just filled with self-righteous indignation and you've been sober 15 years. And you sit at that meeting and dominate it every Tuesday night. <laughs> well, what happens probably is that a newcomer will come into that meeting and see you and conclude. If that creep can stay sober, <laughs> I can stay sober. And you may be the most useful person in the whole meeting. Because you let them know that crazy, self-willed bigots can stay sober too. And, and that's real important information for a lot of people as they walk in the doors. Because they're afraid of joining a society of saints. Remember that fear? You know? These are straight up and down people and they'll never understand me. Uh, they'll understand just fine. <sighs> We've then completed step seven. Tomorrow morning, um, in the first talk, I want to talk about eight and nine and then in the second talk, 10, 11, and 12. Okay. Let's try a tradition for a minute. Tradition 10. 
No AA group or member should ever, in such a way as to implicate AA, express any opinion on outside controversial issues, particularly those of politics, alcohol reform, or sectarian religion. The Alcoholics Anonymous groups oppose no one. That's shocking. I mean, no one. Concerning such matters, they can express no views whatsoever. I hated that. Because I'm a cause person. I have loved causes. And I think before I did, I, I, my, I think I spent my first years in fantasy and passed out of fantasy to causes and from causes went to alcohol. I think that's a, a real progression for me. But I use a lot of things to fix me. I have been far right and far left and radical middle of the road. But what's true is whatever position I've held, when I've held it, I have believed it absolutely. You know, just I was a real intolerant. Um, so I, when I came into um, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I, I was just very burned out on lots of causes. I mean, I didn't need any causes anymore. I was just so scarred and bashed by the political process and other things. And I always back losers. And it just, you know, angry and resentment. And stuff. So um, I was four years sober. And our higher power presented us with uh, a presidential election, you know. And I thought I was well enough to dabble. So I got involved with the candidate and um, started passing around petitions and getting people to sign and then started carrying literature and then started going to meetings and looked all around the room and said, you know, these people really should hear about my candidate because uh, this will fix them. I mean, it really will, and you know, and get them registered to vote. And I personally do not understand people that don't vote. I, they frustrate me and make me angry because I just see it as, you know, silence is consent is the way I look at it. And if you're silent and you're consenting to all these awful things going on, let's get involved and make them nervous, you know. Um, so I, I have a problem. I wanted to register all of AA um, and get them interested in my candidate and get this going. Well, I, I left the material out in my car and went into my regular meeting. I guess it was a Monday night meeting. And, in Hollywood, which is very bizarre. Um, and I suddenly looked around the room. And I noticed in that room, there were some people who thought that King George III was our best president. <laughs> and there were other people that wanted to start by blowing up the Bank of America. You know, that's how you start. <laughs> And I had this spiritual awakening. <laughs> um, that the reason we don't get involved in politics is because politics is not what holds us together. You know? we, dis we probably disagree on a zillion things. And we don't talk about those things at group level because, you know, this is an equal opportunity disease and anybody can get it. And if we focus on alcoholism and recovery, people get well. If we start focusing on lots of other stuff, we get real crazy. And that includes, you know, famine relief and the prohibition and, you know, the nuclear energy. Those are not issues that we talk about. That's also true, by the way, it says uh, 
alcohol reform, which I guess, see, when this was busy being written, prohibition had just been outlawed a couple of years. So that was still a big issue. But the sectarian religion's interesting. I've been to meetings where organized religions have been run up down one side and down the other and blown out of the room. My goodness. That sounds to me like a resentment. You know? And I think that can get you just as drunk as a resentment against anybody else. And I think people need to get told, gently, that resentments make you sick. And if it's about your fourth grade nun, you better go find her and make peace. <laughs> you know? Because, or, you know, it was raised in, you know, the Baptist church, or raised in the Mormon church, or raised in the Catholic church. Somehow, as a top priority, if you're ever going to sleep all night without ulcers and throwing up, you had better make peace with that. Either, you know, we, we say, on, on the book says that many of us return to the religions of our childhood, and that's true. But many of us are allergic to the religions of our childhood. And allergies should be respected. Um, and if you find you're allergic, you can still make peace. You, know? you can still leave calmly instead of leaving in a rage and keeping that rage alive for years. And I think that's an issue that needs to get occasionally talked about at group level. Um, and what else? And, and if you find yourself drawn to a denomination, check it out. I mean, as, as sober women and men, we have the right to ask questions, and we have the right to take classes, and we have the right to read books and find out things. If Christian science interests you, go find out about it. Well, I don't want to join. Then don't join. But go ask. You know, if you're interested in Judaism or Catholicism or Buddhism or practical atheism, there are all kinds of areas you can, you can take night classes, you can take day classes, you can get books, you can find out things in that spiritual area after about five years of good sobriety. <laughs> um, the book on, on one of these steps here, I think it's that fourth one, wherever, where is this? Oh, it, it says here, in step seven, it says, uh, we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. And that brings up the question of humility and pride. And we sometimes have these as topics. And I, I have this reflection on humility. Um, a lot of us think that humility means beating yourself up. I am no good. That's not true. Humility is telling the truth. The humble woman or man is the woman or man who can tell the truth about themselves. Ludwig von Beethoven, in all humility, could say that he would write music that would electrify four centuries of people. People with talent in all humility can say they've got talent. That's telling the truth. If you're good at numbers, if you're good at sports, if you're simply saying, I'm real good, I won three Olympic gold medals, that indicates something. You know, if you're saying, oh, shucks, I just swim, and I'm not that, you're lying, which is what pride is. Pride is the lie. That's why pride kills, because it's the lie. Pride says, oh, I'm much better than all that, or I'm much worse than all that. When you're not, you're just normal. We're one of the folks. But see, what pride does, humility lets me join the group because I tell the truth. Pride separates me from the group because I tell a lie. I don't belong. I'm too good or I'm too bad. 
That's why I tried to kill it. Um, that is the best way I have of understanding humility and pride. Uh, so therefore, to be a humble person, not only do I have to speak the truth, but I have to know the truth about myself. And that's very difficult because I confused myself so easily and I didn't know who I was when I got here. And I had to hear me being talked about by you. When you talked about what was going on in your insides, I was able to compare and I was able to match. I didn't know how to talk about feelings until you taught me how. And I, a month or two or three ago, I was going to a meeting in Berkeley at noon and I rear-ended a woman who had just been fired from her job. <laughs> Turn the tape over now, please. Over eight years sober and rear-ended. Um, her first words to me were, <laughs> through clenched teeth, you'd better have insurance. Didn't even say hello. You know? <laughs> well, I did, and we talked, and you know, I, I but see, in terms, I know the, I've read the book, I talk, I know this stuff, and I, soon as crisis hits, I blank. You know, and, and when, my, what program, God who? This, you know. <laughs> what do you mean? So I, we were there talking for a few moments, and have you been hit before? Have you hit so I have hit people before, so I know how it's done. And I said, well, we need to exchange driver's licenses and insurance names and so forth, and how is your car? Her car was fine. Mine was dead. It was leaking very badly. And I went, you know, okay, what would, it, what would a grown-up do in a situation like this? Um, because I, don't, I, I would just blank and, and hope for someone to come and rescue me in these situations. And, I attended a meeting in Los Angeles a few years ago where a woman named Patricia F., she would talk and she said you know, she'd be on the Santa Monica freeway and get a flat tire at rush hour and her first thought was suicide. First thought. And a couple of days after that she reflected upon the fact that probably most people do not think of suicide immediately after getting a flat tire. They may work up to it. So she said she had an insight into the fact that she tended to overreact. <laughs> so she said, how can I check this? Because you need a check. If you're going to overreact all the time, how do you check it? So she said what she decided she'd do in times of crisis, the only thing she could remember was asking herself the question, what would a normal person do in a situation like this? Now that conveyed nothing to her. She didn't know what normal people did. So then she said, what would Nancy Reagan do in a circumstance like this? And that for some reason brought clarity. The first thing Nancy would do is call Ronnie and then she'd call AAA. She said, that's how it works. Well, I, now I heard that four or five or six years ago to me. Rear-ended this woman, my car's bleeding all over the street. And I said, what would Nancy Reagan do? <laughs> I didn't have to call Ron, believe me, he's not expecting to hear from me, but I did call AAA, and I also had a AAA card, which is even better, and uh, uh, AAA came and picked up my poor machine and took it to Charlie's garage, and I rode with them, and, and it was just awful, and, and then we dropped it off there, and it was just hopeless, and so 
the guy who was on the tow truck, I said, well, would you drop me by at a meeting? And so he said, sure. So I went to the meeting I originally was going to. And I walked in looking awful, just ashen and weird and all stressed out. And it was the last 10 minutes of the meeting. And people were saying, Tom, you look like hell. What happened? I said, oh, I rear-ended someone. It's awful. And they said, oh, uh, basket started being passed around. And I noticed my wallet was gone. <laughs> now, that includes identification money, the credit card, you know, my sprint number, you know, life is gone at that point. And I just, so I retraced, I call it gone, disappeared from the face of the earth, awful. So I walked home, two miles to home, because I'm not going to ask for a ride, and you know, I'm too well to ask for a ride, walked up the stairs and looked through the mail, and I found a two-page single-spaced typed hate letter that went out of its way to say the most awful things about me with a copy, of course, sent to my superior. And it was just awful. Well, this was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. By 5 o'clock, I was sitting in front of the television eating ice cream out of the carton watching Sesame Street. <laughs> know what else to do. <laughs> and people from the noon meeting called and they said, Tom, what's happening? And I said, well, this is, and they said, well, you know, uh, a grown-up would probably cancel the credit card, you know. Uh, all right. And then the Department of Motor Vehicles for a new driver's license. And all that, you know, your, your credit card from Lucky, you know, so you can get a grocery. And you just start spending the next couple of days putting your life back together. That's what a grown-up would do. And that's what I did. But those things don't occur to me spontaneously. I need to hear it from you. I need to, which is why I think the fellowship is very important and why I think meetings are very important. Um, what happens in meetings is we hear people tell our story. And the rough edges get worn off. Uh, Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf writes about the one and only time in his whole life that he ever got drunk. And he was very young. He was just out of the army and it was, you know, 1918, 1920, somewhere in there. And he and a group of guys went out and they had a couple of beers and he had a blackout and had an awful experience and he said it scared the hell out of him. And the next morning when he woke up feeling awful. He took a solemn vow to never again for the rest of his life touch liquor. And he never did. And I would like to use him as a good example of what happens when you don't drink and don't go to meetings. What I've had to learn in dealing with an awful lot of people is a lot about detachment. I'd like to just talk for a few seconds about detachment 
for those of us that get involved with people and those of us that get manipulated by people and those of us who get used by people. Have I left anyone out yet? Okay. Uh, and that includes even in a sponsor-sponsee relationship in AA. It, see, I, I find, and God, can I admit this? Sure. Oh, I can't read anybody else's mind. I just can't do it, and I always thought I should. And consequently, I've never, I'm not in the habit of asking people direct questions. I mean, they, they tell me something and I just wait for them to tell me more, you know. And when they don't, I don't push. And so I remain real ignorant and try to give half answers to half questions, you know. I mean, I, I have to learn how to ask direct questions. But I find in, in, in the whole thing of, of helping people or being helped by people, it can be real crazy. And a lot of people, I used to think, well, here's a sample of my disease. I would go to stores like Lucky Markets or Safeway, and I would find real sick plants. I'd just walk by and I'd hear them, Tom, Tom. And I'd buy them. Because <laughs> it was, so I wouldn't take healthy ones. Why take healthy ones? I'd take these sick little suckers and I'd take them home and try to fix them and they'd die. And then I would blame myself for this. You see? Uh, if I only loved them more. And someone pointed out that the first problem is when I hear them first call my name. <laughs> what I had to learn was to not buy them, leave them there. So as part of my Al-Anon program, I started collecting cactus and succulents <laughs> because they need to be left alone. <laughs> and if you try to fix them, they'll die. So I stick with cactus and succulents. They, you know, they've been the glory for four years. Looks gorgeous. It's wonderful for my humility because it's the truth. I mean, God is the source there. Um, hmm. But it, some people push our buttons. And especially in some family or work situations, all you have to do is push the button and the tape starts. You know? And you find you're saying things you don't want to say, and it just and it, you said the same thing last night, and the night before, and the night before, and how do you stop? Well, here's a suggestion. When detaching from someone, and you detach for your own, you unplug. You unplug the toxic relationship. You're trying to stop the sick response, which keeps the sick game going. That's what you're trying to do. Not to fix them, but to fix you. This is for my sanity. And I don't know what's going to happen to them, and that's not my problem. Five words. Five words. These words can answer most any situation. Yes. No. Really? Whatever. And wow. Okay. Dad, can I have the car tonight? I gotta go out and see the guys. No. If I don't go out and see the guys, I'll run away from home and set fire to the cat. Really? <laughs> well, maybe I'll just go upstairs and do my homework. Whatever. <laughs> you know? Uh, see you tomorrow, Dad. Wow. <laughs> It really covers lots of situations, and I can just to stop, and I use those five words with myself when the committee goes into session. <laughs> I 
am my own alcoholic, and I have to watch that, and it doesn't happen all the time now, but regularly the committee goes into session, and you get more six to seven votes. You know, the vote is six to seven. No landslides. It's just, you know, what am I going to do? It's just awful. So I can, I can, also I need to visualize when I start to obsess. I do need pictures. I think in pictures. And I visualize the cassette tape recorder. And when the committee starts or the tape starts, the monologue starts for the 15th time. I envision putting out the finger and turning off the tape. Might have to do it five or six or 10 or 20 times, but it does stop the noise. There's a marvelous movie, I don't know whether it's made in Nevada yet. It's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's a South African film. Hilarious. And also insightful and poignant, wonderful film. And at one scene early in the film, uh, this woman is working in an office and she walks up to another woman and says, Does the noise in my head bother you? <laughs> Okay. Um, let me um, end this evening. I'll just go a little. This is about, oh, I guess nine to ten more minutes of stuff, and then we can go to the bathroom and do whatever it is we need to do. This is um, a little uh, scripture stuff, and it's about God, and it's more um, Jesus stories, um, and it comes from Luke. Gospel and, and Jesus as a rabbi. I don't know how much you know about rabbis. Rabbis are very special people. <clears throat> rabbis are scholars and teachers. And traditionally in Judaism, uh, rabbis teach using two methods. Number one is telling stories. So you always tell stories. And that illustrates your point. Or you answer questions by asking questions. Example. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The answer is, whose picture is on the coin? Caesar's. Give it to him. Next. You know, it, it, a lot of this was you know, before TV, so it was also entertainment. Um, and public questioning, and a good rabbi could think on his feet. And if he couldn't think on his feet, no one wanted to talk to him. So you have a lot of, Jesus does a lot of repartee in the New Testament, which we kind of miss because we think he's talking all by himself. You know? There's the crowds heckling a lot. Anyway, here is one in Luke chapter 15. He talks about God. And I thought it might be wonderful to hear that tonight before we crash. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. They must have felt very comfortable with him, you know. I don't think he was a member of the moral majority, you know. Uh, at which the scribes and Pharisees murmured, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's a charge, that's an accusation. Then Jesus addressed this parable to them. Who among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wasteland and follow the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders in jubilation. Once arrived home, he invites friends and neighbors in and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, there will likewise be more joy in heaven 
over one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. Repent is a funny word, repienso. It means to rethink. Repienso. To rethink. It doesn't mean, let me cut off a finger. That's not repentance. That's, you know, another problem when there are programs for you. Okay. Jesus goes on. What woman, if she has ten silver pieces and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house in a diligent search until she has retrieved what she lost? And when she finds it, she calls in her friends and neighbors to say, Rejoice with me, I have found the silver piece I lost. I tell you, there will be the same kind of joy before the angels of God over one repentant sinner, over one sinner who rethinks it all. Jesus then said to them, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. So the father divided up the property. Some days later, this younger son collected all his belongings and went off to a distant land where he squandered his money on dissolute living. Yeah, some identify with that, huh? <laughs> After he had spent everything, a great famine broke out in that country and he was in dire need. So he attached himself to one of the property class of the place who sent him to his farm to take care of the pigs. He longed to fill his belly with the husks that were fodder for the pigs, but no one made a move to give him anything. Coming to his senses at last, he said, How many hired hands at my father's place have more than enough to eat? Well, here I am starving. I will break away and return to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. With that, he set off for his father's house. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was deeply moved. He ran out to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. This is not an Irish family. <laughs> we don't touch. Unless you're loaded, you know, and then the German shepherd wasn't safe, but otherwise... <laughs> The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Take the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. Then the celebration began. Meanwhile, the elder son was out on the land. As he heard the house on his way home, he heard the sound of music and dancing. 
He called one of the servants and asked him the reason for the dancing and the music. The servant answered, Your brother is home! And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back in good health. The son grew angry at this and would not go in. But his father came out and began to plead with him. He said to his father in reply. Now, it's important here to listen for the uses of the words always and never. That always is in things like this. This guy says, for years now, don't you love for years now, I have slaved for you. Love these martyrs. <laughs> I never disobeyed one of your orders, yet you never gave me so much as a kid goat to celebrate with my friends. Then when this son of yours returns, after having gone through your property with loose women, you kill the fatted calf for him. <laughs> he needs a program. <laughs> My son, replied the father, you are with me always, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. End of the story. Now, overall, that's all of chapter 15, by the way, of Luke. Interesting, the same story is told three times. You know? And it's interesting as Jesus teaches about God as Jesus understood God. He first compares God to a shepherd, and shepherds weren't nice people. They were nomads who never bathed, you know, and you did not want your daughter to marry a shepherd, or your son for that matter. Shepherds were awful, <laughs> awful people. Um, the, I mean, nice people were stable folks that lived inside. Shepherds were, shepherds were kind of like, you know, car parking lot attendants. Um, you know, it's kind of, you never know what they're on or where they're from. You know, will you get your car back? And I mean, it was all, you know, where are these people? And they always keep showing up in different lots where they're the same thing. You know, this, this, these were, were kind of suspicious folk, you know? And interestingly, in the Jewish scriptures, God has a tremendous love for shepherds. David the king was a shepherd. So it, there, there's a real pattern in Old Testament of choosing the outcast to be the leader. Kind of interesting. Anyway, um, Jesus identifies God with shepherd. Then Jesus identifies God with the woman who's lost the coin, which is kind of interesting. I don't hear a lot of people talking about the number of times Jesus identified God with a woman, but Jesus does. He seems very free with that. And then the third uh, thing is, is this story, which is called the prodigal son, and I think it's a mistake. Because when you call it the prodigal son, you focus on the first kid, who's a creep, you know? The first, although a lot of us identify with him, let's admit this kid is a loser. <laughs> so is the second kid, a loser. Awful, awful, awful. Can you imagine living in the same house with both of them? You know, this poor father. So who's, who's the central character of the story? It's the father. 
And this, as Jesus talks about our Father, you know, God as Father, this is the image Jesus portrays. We, in, in post-Victorian times, I guess we're post-Victorian times, we a lot of times think of Father as authority. Wait till your father gets home, you know. Your father will handle that. that kind. And this, so we have a lot of negative stuff connected with fathers. The Japanese have a slogan, may the gods protect us from floods, fires, famines, and fathers. That's what they say. And, you know, they're not given the best press. But Jesus teaching about Father uses a funny word. There's a lot of different words in Hebrew for Father, just like in English we have Father, Papa, Daddy, Dad, Old Man. I mean, they all have different nuances and so forth. Um, the word Jesus uses is Abba. A-B-B-A, like the singing group from Sweden. Abba. And Abba, like so many other Hebrew words, has a picture connected with it. And the picture connected with this word is very graphic. It is uh, uh, the male parent standing in the door, kind of coming in from a day's work. And a child, it, Abba is a, a three or four-year-old child's word. And a three or four-year-old child running across the floor, throwing himself into the father's arms. And the father catches. That's Abba. Okay. That's our Father who art in heaven. Um, it, where's heaven? You know? Well, heaven is not a physical place. Heaven is a state of mind. Our Father in heaven means that God is having a wonderful time. And we can be in heaven too. Or we can be in hell. And most of us have been there. You know? Dante's hell is very interesting. A lot of us, again, we think our, our imaginations can be so limited because we watch too much TV, you know. And when you, you watch TV when they have hell, it's the guy with the horns and the pitchfork and smoke and fire. You see, that's hell. Well, Dante, 15th century Italian poet, didn't see it that way at all. He saw hell as this huge pit, kind of like a copper mine, and you go down and down further and further and further into the pit. And uh, on the very outskirts of hell are people who were guilty of sexual sins. They were, on the, they were in hell because they broke the law, but they were on the outside of hell, Dante said, because at least they tried to love, you know? So they're on the very outreaches of hell. And then the more you go into the inferno, uh, the more desperate and awful it gets. And when you get to the very pit of hell, you don't have fire, you have ice. And the pit of hell for Dante is frozen. And, and Satan is hanging upside down. And in Satan's mouth are three people. Brutus and Cassius, the two men that, that killed Julius Caesar. They were his best, he was their best friend and they killed him. And Judas Iscariot, who was Jesus' best friend who betrayed him. Because to Dante's mind, the most awful sin in the world is the betrayal of someone loved. That's why they're in the pit of hell. I think that's fascinating. And whether right or wrong, it's a poet's imagination that if it helps, use it, you know. And if it doesn't help, don't use it. But it's, it's our Father in heaven. Um, it's a state of mind. God is having a wonderful time and we are invited along for the ride. Uh, if we choose to take it. Or we can stay in hell, which I think primarily is being in isolation. There's a funny American phrase, we refer to someone who's lost his mind. 
as if they're crazy. I don't think that you're crazy when you lose your mind. I think you're crazy when the only thing left is your mind. Everything else is gone. Memory is gone, body is gone, physical sensation is gone. The committee is in permanent session. That's hell. And most of us have been there at one time or another, and some of us visit back on a regular basis. Um, the biggest change is that now what used to be permanent residents just becomes tourists, you know, and they just visit, but they come and go, and that's the good news. Okay. Well, I don't have anything else that's true to say tonight, so um, why don't we end? It's about 8.16. Why don't we end with the Lord's Prayer?